0: If you have your health, you can have 100 goals. If you don't have your health, then you only have one goal. Dr. Alan Christensen. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Kieran Dunstan, shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. Lean in and get ready to experience the bountiful, blissful, and beautiful vitality that you deserve. Welcome back to the show. Like the initial quote says, when you don't have your health, you only have one goal, and that is to get it back, right? Once you have health, then you can have a hundred goals of all types. So what's more important than your health? Really, nothing. And our current situation of how our economy has shut down to protect our health really highlights this eternal fact. So we'll be getting into the details of how your metabolism is vital to your waist and your health with liver playing the starring role. I'm going to tell you a little more about this and then we'll get started. But first, a note of gratitude to two listeners who wrote reviews for the podcast this week. Thank you to DMerv811 who says great information and gives the podcast five stars. Dr. Kieran is a great host that provides great content with outstanding guests. You will not be disappointed. Thank you, DMIRF811, for listening and for your review. It helps people to find us. And to Doc, who says, awesome, exclamation point, with five stars. Dr. Johnston is awesome, and her podcast is truly something every woman should listen to. Thank you so much to both of you for taking a few seconds to go onto iTunes and write a review. It helps other women just like you to find us and get this vital information. So I'd ask you to pay it forward and go online and write a review today and share this episode with someone who could benefit from it. Most of us know so many women having health problems. And I bet if you just close your eyes and think for a second, you can think of five So send them a link and tell them to check it out. And I thank you in advance. So today the topic is your metabolism and waste loss. That's right. I said waist loss, not weight loss. Because ultimately, that's what you really want, right? For the inches to come off. Well, it's what your body wants too. Because losing inches around your waist means that you're losing fat from inside your body's organs. And this is vital for your metabolism to flourish and prosper and get you to your ideal weight and keep you there. So it's all about waste loss. And New York Times bestselling author of The Metabolism Reset Diet, Dr. Alan Christensen, is here to help you understand why your liver is more than just your sanitation department. It's your main fuel storage facility too and how it is a key driver of your metabolic set point that either helps or hinders you in losing weight. I love Dr. Christensen, not only because he is one of the smartest doctors I know, he's literally a walking encyclopedia but also because he has a special ability to break complex and varied information down to delicious bite-sized nuggets that are digestible by everyone so that you understand complex science. And this, I believe, is his superpower. He says something different during the episode is his superpower, but this is why he's so special in my eyes. Oh, and he also has a beautiful wife with a beautiful name. Yeah, you guessed it. Her name is Kieran too, and they are a lovely couple. And like all of us doctors who practice root cause resolution medicine, Dr. Allen has a personal journey of struggle and redemption to share with you as well. So there's lots of hope for your healing journey too. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Alan Christensen, and we will get started. Dr. Alan Christensen is a naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid function, including Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, and Graves' disease. He is a New York Times best-selling author whose books include The Metabolism Reset Diet, The Adrenal Reset Diet, and the soon-to-be-released Thyroid Reset Diet. Dr. Christensen regularly appears on national media like Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show. He is the founding president of the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians and has a thriving practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Alan Christiansen. It's so wonderful to have you on the show.
1: Hey, Dr. Kieran. Good to connect again. Nice to be with you.
0: Yes, I'm very excited to talk about metabolism reset. People ask all the time, you know, what's wrong with my metabolism? I think people really understand that when they're having a weight problem, that it is their metabolism that is the problem. But how to get it up to speed is the question. But Can you help everybody understand what the physiologic definition of metabolism is?
1: For sure. You know, it's your body taking food and converting that food energy into heat and into movement. You know, how will we actually generate energy from our food? And when it works well, we've got a lot of leeway in which we've got some energy stored and we can go between meals and still be well energized if our food intake is a little higher, we can store that in ways that we can get to it easier. And if it's a little lower, we can still pull out energy from stores. So yeah, healthy metabolism lets your weight and energy both stay where you want.
0: Right, and so it's important to understand what goes into your body having a metabolic set point And what does determine that?
1: Yeah, a lot of variables make that up, but overall it's been changing for people. You know we see that there's been a big shift in just the rate of overweight, of obesity, how we want to define this. And even amongst those that have good scale weights, too few have healthy amounts of muscle tissue. So there have been factors making that change. You know, classic things we know about like age and gender and genes are part of that. But what I've found is that I mentioned before how your body can store fuel and retrieve fuel. That's when it works right, and that comes down to the liver. And so it seems that a lot of changes in liver function can make it to where someone can no longer retrieve fuel, you know, they're storing it just fine, but they can't get it out. So liver function is a big variable that affects metabolism.
0: Right. And I understand that in your book, that is really the center, the liver takes center stage as the weight loss organ, which I absolutely love. I do want you to give everybody a little bit of background because people ask me all the time, why do I only hear this from you, Dr. Kieran? or they might say it about why does Dr. Christensen talk about this? Why doesn't my regular doctor Doctor talk about this. And I know you had your own journey with weight as a child and health problems that kind of set you on your path. And I explained to them that most of the doctors that practice this type of medicine had health challenges that were unanswered by allopathic medicine. So they had to seek answers elsewhere. And they found this type of medicine. Can you share with everyone what your personal journey was that you came on the path that you're on now?
1: That was a big part of why I was so passionate about this book. Uh, I've spent the last couple of decades helping people with thyroid disease, especially and endocrine conditions. And I think one of the biggest reasons I was drawn to that is because these are situations in which weight is even more of a struggle than it can be otherwise. In my early life, I've, I have understood just just how devastating that could be, you know, when you did your best to eat well and seemed to have normal activity levels. But, you know, I was a really heavy kid, and it would not budge. And I really understood what the social ostracism was and, you know, not being able to do things physically from being limited from that. And, yeah, being picked on and set apart, it, it really sucked. And I had a point in my early years of practice when I was just burning the candle at both ends, I'd lost a lot of my healthy habits where the weight started coming back really quickly. So I've always known that it's something that I can just slide into at a moment's notice. And I know how badly it sucks and how tough it can be. So I was really jazzed to want to help make some understandings. You know, for me, I didn't have hormonal issues as a child, but a lot of it was related to my issues from cerebral palsy. So it was really understanding how to be on a diet that could work with my limited ability for movement. You know, how could I have this work without a ton of exercise to make up the difference? And that was where it took a lot of books, a lot of trial and, You know, iteration, but just to understand how much your body can heal when it gets the right circumstances and just what a hugely positive experience that can be in your life. That's what made me want to do this work. And
0: so I'm curious, you went the naturopathic physician route. Was mainstream medical school ever an option or thought for you? And what made you decide on getting a naturopathic doctor degree?
1: Yeah, that's an awesome question. And my first thought was to go into, I didn't know about the naturopathic profession. I was going to go into conventional medicine. I was lined up to go to University of Minnesota Medical School. And perhaps things are better now, and maybe some communities are better than others. But the feedback that I was receiving from doctors that were mentoring me and I was connecting with, you know, I'd already had a strong connection with natural medicine, nutrition, lifestyle, and that was going to be a big part of what my practice was was going to end up. And I shared some of my experiences with doctors. There was actually a paper that had just come out about, one of the first ones about chromium picolinate. And I remember one doctor talking about that and talking about how people could take 200 milligrams of chromium and have it be helpful. And I said, doctor, you mean micrograms, right? (laughs) I had read this paper and I was aware of it. And so I already got that these things could be important, but the conventional world had, you know, maybe a cursory understanding of it. And so we, we became friends and he pulled me aside and he says, look, I get that you're into these things and there's probably some merit here, but just please know that, you know, your peers wouldn't support you in this and you could lose your license, even if you're helping people and following good evidence. If you're outside of standards of practice, you could lose your license and have liabilities from that. And that hit me like the proverbial ton of bricks or the splash of cold water or whatever. And it just blew me away that, I could be well-intentioned and being helpful and being giving good information and yet not be received well by peers. So I was adrift for a little while and then I learned about the naturopathic profession and I realized I could get the training I wanted, and that I could practice more so internal medicine, focus on these concerns, and be amongst a peer of those that supported that. And I think there are now more options and more awareness of functional medicine and better support. But yeah, that was how it played out for me. Oh, it's so
0: interesting. I grew up in New York City, and my mom was really good friends with Gary Null. I don't know if you know mm-hmm, for Gary. Sure. He's written many, many books, and he really was a, a forerunner in educating the the world about natural types of medicine, holistic care. And she used to give us golden seal and echinacea when we were sick. And, you know, we thought she was kind of eccentric. And then, of course, I went to mainstream medical school and I came back and told her mother, we heal with steel. And then, you know, fast forward a few decades... I came back to learn that Gary's way of teaching and healing the body and naturopathic medicine really was the way to address the root causes after over a decade in mainstream medicine. So I had to come full circle. And I kind of wish sometimes that I had gotten that lesson at the beginning. But for whatever reason, we all have our own path. That's right. It took me this route. But I, I think it's very instructive for people like the audience to hear this because they're always scratching their heads thinking, well, a doctor's a doctor and it shouldn't matter. And why don't I hear about root cause resolution from my physician? So I love for practitioners to share their stories on the show to help people understand exactly what the journey, we had to have some pain to get to (laughs) where we are. But let's jump back to, we were starting to talk about the liver and how vital it is for weight for the metabolism set point and so can you help everyone understand that because I think most people really just think of the liver as as the sanitation department and that's all it does <laughs> is, is clean up everything so help everyone understand really what the
1: liver does it does a lot and you're totally right as far as sanitation <laughs> but so Back to the idea of of fuel and energy, Mm -hmm. we get fuel from fats, carbs, even like ketones or alcohol, lots of molecules can be burned as fuel. And as far as your liver is concerned, there's not even a big difference amongst, well, alcohol is different, but the others can be used in a lot of similar ways, especially fats and carbs. So when your liver is healthy, your body, we use fuel 24-7. I mean, even asleep, we're using a lot of energy, but we're not eating 24-7. So our liver is kind of like one of the main gas tanks and there's overflow tanks, which is various types of fat that we have, but the liver is the main healthy source of gas. And so between a meal, we're releasing energy from our liver to keep all those things going. And when it works well, it's got fuel in two types. There's one type that's called triglyceride, one type that's called glycogen. And if it's got a nice ratio of those two, it can pretty easily put fuel in and out, but there's a lot of conditions in which those ratios are not right. There's a thing called fatty liver syndrome. And it's it's so common. People have it's so underdiagnosed and underconsidered, but most everyone that has weight struggles, they've got some version of that. Maybe it's some very early stages, but it's really common. And in that situation, the liver has too little glycogen. And so it can store fuel really well. It's it, you know, things come in, but fuel can't come out. And the combination of that is people can eat reasonable amounts of food and anytime they get a slight excess, it's stored away in a way that cannot reverse. And anytime that they diet or exercise hard, their body can't do a good job, stop tapping into that stored fuel. And so they're famished, they get brain fog, they get food cravings. It's not sustainable for them. And that's saying that something is not right. You know, all of us, even like the most lean marathoners are carrying enough fuel in the form of fat to get by for days and days on end so when the liver works well it can tap into that fuel supply but when it isn't we can store just fine but we can't reverse it so that's the core issue
0: and so what causes people to have a problem with their fuel storage in their liver
1: yeah so there's three main things one of which i mean obviously just too much fuel but that alone doesn't explain the trend going up in population. so that that's one thing. There can also be wrong ratios, like too little of certain types of fuel. So it turns out that glycogen, we we need glycogen to burn triglyceride. I think about this like if you've ever been camping and you you got to burn wood, you know it's not easy to ignite uh, logs. You need to have some kindling, maybe some uh, even some gas or something and matches. So that's what glycogen is, it doesn't burn as long, it doesn't have as much power, but you need that to get the triglycerides going. And so in some cases, if there's too little glucose relative to other food supplies, that can make it to where there's just not a lot of glycogen. And then also there are certain micronutrients we need for all these things to occur. Some people can be low in things like magnesium or zinc, that can be relevant. And then last up, there's a lot of wastes that the body makes that the liver has to deal with, but there's just countless wastes that our environment exposes us to that it has to deal with as well. And there's a new family of chemicals called obesogens because we know that exposure to certain chemicals predisposes people to weight, not even just like weight gain per se, but weight loss resistance. And that's even independent of how much activity they're doing and how much food they're eating. So so yeah, chemical exposure, micronutrients, and then just overall amounts and types of fuel are the main variables.
0: And what are some of the most common obesogens that people might recognize that they're encountering in their environment?
1: Yeah, lots of things. Some of the best documented ones include lead and then PCBs as far as real common ones. You know, lead is something we get from not water that's not purified. It's it's in a lot of calcium supplements, those that are more so insoluble versions of it as well. And we can come across that from a variety of food sources. PCB, same thing. We will get those in a lot of, lot of animal fats, a lot of plastic byproducts, and these are things that can really persist in the body and hunker down and stay there for a long time.
0: And so I know people are listening and thinking, "Oh my gosh, I wonder if I have that." How would they know if they had lead or how would they know if they had plastic byproducts or other toxins that are obesogens in them? And how what would they do about the, getting
1: rid of them? Yeah. So measuring them and getting rid of them, the main way in which they're storing is they're building up in one of the fat types of fat tissue and there's the fat below the skin the subcutaneous and there's the fat that's around the organs there's a third level that's inside the organs and that's that's the most dangerous type Uh, believe it or not one of the easiest ways to get a sense on how much of a burden someone might have is their height to waist ratio and that's that's a simple measurement that gives you a sense about how much intraorgan fat there may be carrying inside the liver and inside the pancreas So someone's height, here's an example for easy math. If a woman were five feet tall, five times 12, she's 60 inches tall. So the circumference of her belly button first thing in the morning, she'd want that to be decently under 30 inches, half of 60. So you want your waist to height ratio to be well under 50%. If she were 30 or above, that would be a sign saying that she's got a buildup of fat within the liver. And that can be one of the big signs of those chronic exposure to obesogens.
0: And I saw in your book that you talked about a clinical study that you did before you published it where you had people follow the protocol, I guess it was for four or six weeks, I can't remember, and that they actually significantly lowered their abdominal circumference with the (laughs) protocol can you talk about that uh-huh
1: you know it's super exciting yeah well we always talk about weight loss and you know it's really waste loss that we care about both in terms of just like how we look and how we feel and also in terms of how our health plays out so a good rule of thumb is that if you find that you have to lose i do six ten twelve pounds to lose an inch you're probably losing a lot of muscle tissue and you're probably not getting healthier. But what really lights me up is that people that follow the metabolism reset diet, they tell me all the time that they lose an inch per pound or two pounds per inch, that it's very different. They're losing a lot of inches relative to pounds. And that's exciting because when someone says that, I know they're not going to rebound. You know, they're now at a new point in terms of their metabolism. They've they've kept their lean body mass and they've shed a lot of that intra organ fat inside the liver and so now they're going to have an easier time always having steady even energy levels and not having crazy food cravings they'll basically be better able to eat reasonable food you know follow their appetite best they can and there's some good days and some bad days but people that are naturally healthy and thin those things all balance themselves out and that's what happens when your liver works right as those things can sort themselves out again Hey,
0: have you been feeling anxious about the current climate and new risks to your health and wondering if your overall level of health is good enough to support you if you were to get sick? You are not alone. Now more than ever, your health has got to be brilliant, support you and shine. It's time to stop procrastinating on getting the evaluation knowledge, tools, and support that you know you need to address the roots of what's going wrong with your health, keeping you tired, overweight, lacking in stamina, and on prescription medications. That is just not good enough anymore. New threats mean you've got to develop a better defense, and I'm here to help. I personally invite you to schedule a complimentary phone consultation with me wherever you live to discuss your personal health concerns and how a comprehensive holistic root cause approach can help you not only alleviate the current symptoms you're having, but also boost your level of health resilience. It's all about resilience now. You can sign up on my website, kierandunstonmd.com, where there's additional information about supercharging your wellness during this important time in our history. And so, what's different about this diet that gives waste loss, so intraorgan fat versus just weight loss, how is it different?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And, and that was a tricky thing. I put a lot of work into sorting through and testing. So it's, it's not a trick to just drop weight any way you radically lower your food intake. But like I said, it's often easier to lose a lot of pounds but not lose a lot of inches and that's putting someone setting them up for rebound. So the trick was your liver, there's some things that it needs and yet you have to create enough of a deficit of fuel. And by fuel, I'm talking about fats and carbs. We've gone through cycles of demonizing one or the other, and the pitfall, they're, they're both good, they both have positive things to offer, but you can overdo either of them, and they both act a lot like fuel when it comes down to the liver. However, protein is different. Now your liver needs protein for essential amino acids to carry out its reactions, to do things like get rid of the stuck triglycerides. And there's also many micronutrients your liver needs. There's a lot of types of fiber that it needs for optimal function, especially resistant starch to buffer the blood sugar. And then there's certain phytochemicals from plant categories that benefit liver function. So it's almost like there's like two opposing forces. There's some things that you want to do less of for a while, and that's the fuel. But there's other things you've got to supply in adequate or abundant amounts. And that's what the diet does. It set things, sets things up to where there's appropriate amounts of protein, and especially higher pH plant proteins that can support the liver and help the body do well during rapid fat breakdown and still supply essential amino acids, good phytonutrients, adequate micronutrients, important types of fibers. There's a lot of types of fibers. So the liver gets the building blocks that it needs, but it gets enough of a break from excess fuel that it can flip that switch and restore glycogen while breaking down stored triglycerides so you have to
0: have macronutrient balance the mic essential micronutrients fiber and certain types of fiber and then do you have some cyclicity to how people are getting these nutrients
1: for sure it's all spelled out and basically the particular foods that are relevant the particular plant categories there's a group of vegetables called the apaca vegetables that are especially relevant to reversing poor liver function. so i relied heavily on those and that's and I thought a lot too about just practicalities. You know, it's funny, there's many ways in which we study the purely thermodynamic effects of weight loss and sometimes they don't fit what happens in terms of the behavioral effects of weight loss. So I want to take both of those things into account. And in terms of behavioral data, I've seen a lot of evidence showing that, that there's two different things that tap on someone's willpower. You know, one is just how much your diet has changed and how much your food is reduced. But the other is, how many things are you figuring out and how many rules are you following? <laughs> yeah. And I've seen data arguing that the complexity can be a bigger factor than the food reduction. So I wanted to make it really simple to where you're putting together a couple of shakes in the morning and you're set for breakfast and lunch. You're not thinking through those things and you know exactly what you're going to consume and there they are and they're all done. And then you've got a reasonable meal you can make in the dinner. You've got options for snacks if you want them. So I wanted it to be not a lot of moving parts and yet still hit all those benchmarks of low enough in the fuel, but supplying all the critical things your liver needs to heal itself.
0: Yes, uh, the ease of implementation is key, that's for yeah. sure. And I know everybody's probably wondering APACA veg- vegetables,
1: <laughs> <laughs> what are those? Those include carrots and parsnips and parsley, and they've got some unique properties for benefiting a few of the phase one pathways the liver needs for clearing triglycerides. You know, another big concept that I wanted to push through with this was that the idea of a reset is not meant to be everyday life. You know, a diet is something that's a means to an end. You do this so that you can then eat reasonably well and maintain your weight naturally. And it's not... So all the things that I go have someone do during that process are things that, yeah, you do for a set period of time for four weeks and you know that after four weeks that you'll stop. So it's straightforward and self-contained. And
0: so after they do a reset, then they can go back to eating the way they were eating.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I talk a lot about ideas for maintenance. And I believe that most people are eating well, most people that would talk to someone like us or follow us, they know a lot more food rules than just the average person on the American diet. And I think that they're doing, they're eating 80, 90% just fine. When your body's healthy, that's good enough. So it's really awesome to have someone make that transition. The thing I love to hear the most is they'll say, hey, I'm six months out, you know, I dropped these inches. And and it's common to see some drift of like maybe a small amount of a few pounds or half of an inch and then steady out, that's normal. But then someone will say, yeah, I, I stayed, I've maintained this now. And I'm eating, you know, not too different than I was before, but I'm at a new weight, whereas before that didn't work for me. So that's like the really exciting thing to hear.
0: And what about things like alcohol that can really interfere with your liver function? How do you counsel people on that when they're trying to reset their metabolism?
1: Yeah, during the reset phase, I encourage avoiding alcohol and caffeine for for different reasons, but it takes the amount of, I don't know, your liver always has a certain amount of stress that it has to deal with in a certain certain amount it can maintain, but during a window of time, like a reset, you just want everything working in its favor. So you want like any possible extra stress you could avoid, you want to avoid that. So it has more resources to heal itself.
0: But on an ongoing basis, do you counsel that patients should avoid caffeine or alcohol, or do you think that they can maintain optimal health with consumption of those on a regular basis?
1: Boy, on an ongoing basis, they're two very different things. So caffeine, there's pretty good evidence that the average person's genotype has either no effect or some positive benefits from typical amounts of coffee or tea, you know, probably more so the polyphenols and the caffeine, but not sure about that. There certainly are some genotypes that are different. And some people notice that they are much more anxious than they would expect even on small amounts. I've had a lot of folks that have had insomnia, anxiety. And for many people, caffeine is just a background part of life. You don't even think about it. And if someone does struggle with those issues long term, and they've never just tested doing a caffeine withdrawal, it's probably worth testing. Some people do much better on none, some do well on small amounts, and many people do totally fine on it with no issues. So if you've never tested going off, that's a cool thing about a reset too, is you just see how you do, you you test that. As far as alcohol goes, I look really closely at the evidence on that as far as its effects upon health. And... In the past, I had seen a lot of arguments that there were health benefits to cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular risk. And there's always been data arguing about concerns about breast cancer, stomach cancer, other cancers, but it was often thought that some of the cardiovascular benefits outweighed that. And some of the newer studies I've seen suggested that the cardiovascular data might have been misleading. It turns out that many people don't consume any alcohol and they may have worse health outcomes than those that consume a little. And it was logical to think that the little bit of alcohol helped them. But on closer analysis, it seems that those that consumed no alcohol, many people in that category really couldn't for medical reasons. You know, they were taking certain medications, they had chronic conditions, and those things themselves made them less healthy than those that weren't restricted from drinking alcohol. So it wasn't they were sick because they were that they were not having any alcohol. So they were sick for other reasons. And therefore, they were not drinking alcohol. So now if we pull those people out and look at people that they could drink if they wish to, but they choose not to, they're healthier than those that drink a little bit. So there probably are small amounts to where the, the harm is negligible enough for most people to not worry about. But yeah, I don't see strong data that there's health benefits to it any longer.
0: That's very interesting. So it's a big old confounding variable and really a bias in selection for comparison that they were comparing people who really were had differing baseline levels of health.
1: It's exactly what it was. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. That's something that I'm working with a lot of middle-aged women as I do. I come in contact with a lot is the red wine that (laughs) is consumed so regularly, you know, on a daily basis, two to four or even five glasses sometimes. Oh my. Yeah. And I always have big concern for liver well-being, gastrointestinal tract lining.
1: Breast cancer.
0: Breast cancer the cancers that it increases. And so it's it's a real challenge to get people to give it up when it really has become their way of life. How do you handle people who really aren't who are regular moderate drinkers and not willing to moderate their drinking?
1: You know, a funny thing, if someone is in that kind of a range you're talking about, they're clearly getting health risks. And so then the discussion is think through what really is the opposition to giving it up? what does that reflect on that? And why would you not, or even just to reduce it, you know, what is the opposite to reducing? And then if someone is mindful enough about that, they realize, Oh, wow, this is something I'm relying on that I could perhaps address these same concerns in other ways. You know, there's other ways I could manage my, my stress, my anxiety that might not cause risks for me. And perhaps I could look at those strategies. Uh, the funny thing is that if someone will say, Oh yeah, take it or leave it. I have some here or there that's someone where it's probably not an issue for them in any way. (laughs) But the person that kicks and screams, that's the person that's going to have a life-changing benefit when they radically reevaluate their relationship with it. And an easy thing there is I love the idea of an occasional reset in which you know that you'll go without these things for a while. And if someone does go for a month without, they can see how they function. And in most cases, they find out that they're much more mentally alert. You know, the common cycle is, it's uppers and downers you know you need a lot of caffeine to get you going and a lot of alcohol to wind you down and if you stop if you stop one of those you can stop the other pretty easily and if you do that you find that you don't need, you're not as anxious, you know, you don't need to unwind as much and you're not as wiped out the next morning, you know, so it's a vicious cycle you can break.
0: Yes, it's so interesting. And, but just mentioning that, that idea of doing a reset at a regular interval, I, I really love that. And, and I always talk with my clients about doing some type of formal detox program, depending on where their health is, maybe some people need it, I find maybe every other month, some people might need it twice a year. But I would love to get your opinion on fasting mimicking diets and intermittent fasting. And there's so much buzz around various types of fasting, and the benefits for the immune system and increase in natural killer cells and other immune cells, and other health benefits, weight maintenance or weight reduction. What are your thoughts on these various types of fasting.
1: It's a fascinating topic and I keep watching that. And that really brings back that brief comment I mentioned about how there's the thermodynamic effects of weight loss and the behavioral effects. So what I mean is that they've done many papers looking at people that have done various types of intermittent fasting or, or other types of fasting programs. And if you could map out how much food they ate, they didn't fast every day, but say they fasted for you know, five days out of a month, just throwing this out for an example. If you map out how much food they ate in that month, the amount of weight that was lost, was exactly proportionate how much food they ate in that month, you know? And so if someone else didn't fast, but they ate less every day, they would have exactly the same amount of weight loss. So one on one hand, someone could say, oh, it doesn't work any better than just lowering their food intake. And in a thermodynamic sense, that's exactly true. But then there's the behavioral side to that. And for some people, habits that involve doing things differently on a few days might end up being more effective for them. So in those cases, if someone, if someone comes and said, hey, I tried that and I my weight came down, my health improved, and I've been stable since then, and now I can eat with more leeway. I, I think that's awesome. But I see many people that say, well, I tried that, but I didn't get all the way there, or maybe it, it lapsed or something. And in those cases, you still could get benefit by doing something like metabolism reset. Interesting. One more comment also about the idea of longevity and whatnot. I guess I'm waiting for evidence. <laughs> We'll only know that doing X makes people live longer when we see that doing X makes people live longer. There's a lot of easy ways to measure markers of longevity, and they may or may not actually correlate with longevity. So, so far, we we don't really have evidence about that. And the the tricky thing is that some things that seem to promote longevity based on data that we have from mouse models or from animal models, they seem to contradict things that help humans age better. You know, we have to we have to separate out health span and lifespan. Like, you know, can you pass your genetic potential, or can you get to your genetic potential? And if we reach a point at where all humans are dropping dead on their hundred twentieth birthday, then we should think about about extending lifespan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but until then, we've got to think about extending health span and just not dying early from chronic disease. So yeah, that's a big distinction.
0: Oh, that is a huge distinction because <laughs> it, you know, and it's it is. It's all about vitality and health resilience and really having the most optimal function that you can have so you can enjoy yourself and give your gifts. That's what I always say. And uh, I think that's vital. I will say that I have tried fasting mimicking and it's really challenging
1: (laughs) to do that diet. Have you ever tried it? I have in the past. And yeah, uh, those that do it, I guess I from the big studies, we don't see that it's more effective than just food reduction as far as how much fat loss there is, even how much weight loss there is and how long it stays off. Again, if someone says, hey, that worked for me and I'm six months out, I'm doing great, I'm glad you did it. But in trying to predict to someone what would likely work best, yeah, the evidence doesn't support that.
0: Yeah, and I think it had a lot to do with the behavioral component of it. I I almost would rather just fast than try to create a very low calorie diet to eat for a few days. It was very challenging to do that. Yeah, But so much good information. And I know you have another book coming out about the thyroid in January, I believe. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this is is something I'm really, really excited about. This has been my single biggest focus all along. And there's been just a mountain of brand new research these last several years that it blows me away how it's basically gone unnoticed. But it turns out that our exposure to some common nutrients is probably amongst the biggest controllable driver of thyroid disease, and we can we can adjust the diet. We can get in a right window, you know. The just to give your your listeners an insider perspective, iodine is a Goldilocks mineral. We need some, but like you know, not too hot and not too cold. And it turns out that how much we need is narrower than we thought. And it also turns out that we're exposed to it from a lot of sources that we never expected before. You know, there's skin products, there's radical, radically variable amounts in a lot of foods. So yeah, I'm really excited to get this message out.
0: Yeah, it's the thyroid reset, right? It is. It is Yeah, so it'll be out in January. And I know you wanted to share with everyone the Metabolism Reset Diet Challenge. We'll definitely put a link in the show notes. Would you like to give everyone a preview of what that is?
1: These are so cool. We've got 500 new people in one right now. And we, we do a free challenge uh, every regular, irregular basis. <laughs> so yeah. we'll get a special date there for, for you guys to to come on in. But we do this for free. We put together recipes, training videos, and people can come on in and just experience the challenge. And the awesome thing is the community. We've got, oh, I think about 20,000 alumni that are in the Facebook group for the challenge. And we have our own support crew, but they are the ultimate Cheerleaders and troubleshooters and you know, encouragers and guides. So it's it's so easy to do with a group and have everyone go through that together and with those who've done it before. So yeah, it's it's a great thing.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna encourage everyone to look into that. Look into the metabolism reset diet book and also the thyroid reset when it's available and look at the challenge. You know, one of the things that I really love about you is that you really are a doctor's doctor. You are up to date on all the latest science and stuff studies and publications around these topics. And yet and still you make it down to earth, relatable and understandable to the lay person, like saying that iodine is a Goldilocks mineral. I love that. I love how you put (laughs) things in plain English. You make it practical, relatable and easy to do. So I'm going to encourage everyone to look into that. And I want to ask you a few questions that I love to ask all my guests, because patients are always wondering, well, what do you do to stay healthy? And you have your own health journey from having weight and other health challenges. So what is your number one health practice that you can't do without to keep yourself in optimal shape?
1: Boy, it would have to be journaling, thinking it through. That's, that's the thing I've been the most consistent about. And I don't know, part of that is just, there's some level of stress reduction, you know, we hold whatever Feelings we're we are not comfortable with, we hold them in very physical ways in our in our brains, and they sit there until they're made into words, and that could be talking, that can be writing. But there's some physical change that takes place with our neuroanatomy when we do that. So that's big, but also I just get perspective on my daily habits and what's what's serving me and what's not. So that's where it all comes back to. And I've done this in various ways. I actually just transitioned recently. For a lot of years, I would do physical notebooks, and there is something about handwriting and something you can you can't get distracted on your know, the notebook doesn't have any web pages they're going to take you elsewhere and so there's that but i love the idea of seeing past entries at a glance like from you know the same thing i put on that date years ago so that's and i also like to, be able to access it easily so There's a program called Journal that I'm using. I've also used one called Day One, but you can do it in any way like that. But it's just a powerful, powerful tool for me.
0: I love that you said that. You might be the first person to say that. And I'm just wondering, because I know people listening are wondering, well, how long do you do this each day?
1: I've seen data as far as the radical psychological benefits being with five minutes. When I was doing paper, that's one thing I like too, is that It was a very concrete thing. There's a full page. You know, it's very easy to say what was a done point. But the drawback is that it could become almost, I don't know, almost like just to finish the page, I would just say stuff. So that was a drawback about that. So (laughs) (laughs) it it might not be as high quality. It's like like bigger words or more words or... So I always journal in the morning and I usually journal at night and I often jump in a few times in the day and just make a few comments or notes onto it as well. So I, I don't have a set amount, but I've seen data arguing that somewhere around five minutes per day can yield some pretty radical psychological benefits.
0: I love that. I love that that you do that, that you, that that's your number one. And what is your superpower, Dr. Allen? We all have a superpower. What is yours?
1: You know, so here's a funny thing. So superpowers there's also like the dark side to them. You know, your strength is also your weakness, right? So (laughs) my strength and my weakness is my persistence. If I get on something, if I get going on something, I can't let it go. And that's awesome because I'll spend, oh, geez, I've probably spent 30,000 hours reading papers on iodine and thyroid disease. I'm not exaggerating. And on one sense, that's like, you know, get a life, dude. (laughs) So there's a lot of opportunities I've lost because of that. But in the other sense, I'll get perspectives that I just wouldn't get otherwise. Or, you know, like when I train, I, I'll i get hardcore into a sport or activity and I'll go as far as my as far as I can go with that. I can do quite well, but then I can also overtrain and injure. So that's that's the superpower. And that's also the kryptonite.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love that. But you look, look at the things that you accomplish that helps so many people. So we thank you for your persistence. <laughs> thank you for that. Kid. And last but not least, the name of the podcast is Her Brilliant Health Revolution. And I'd love if you could share with the audience what Her Brilliant Health means to you.
1: What it means to me is that we're always seeking for something. We're always trying to push towards some place of more security, more way we can do more for our families, you know, some ways to live into a mission better, you know, our, our own personal social standing. We're always trying to improve on things in some way. And i realized that your health is like the foundation for all of that. You know, if there's a saying that if a person has their health, they can have a hundred goals, but if they don't, they only have one goal. That's all they really think about. And so when you've got that in place, when you've got habits in which you're not just not sick, but like joyously, vibrantly healthy, you know, then that just fuels everything else. Not only does it not inhibit all of your other goals but it fuels your goals you've got the spark you've got the vitality you can just make anything go and you can have have so much fun with that and the revolution idea to me implies that you're wherever you are this is a cool concept so you can make a spectrum like one end of that uh, the highest end of that could be the enlightened master, the, you know the, the guru, the, the, the celebrity, the, the, the gold medalist, however that looks like to you, whatever the pinnacle of achievement would be. And on the other end, it's like no longer being alive. You know so there's a continuum between being dead and being your very best possible self. And your pleasure, your happiness in the moment this is a bizarre thing and I've not heard this elsewhere it's not where you are on the continuum. It's which way you're moving on the continuum. So how cool is that? So if you feel you're a long ways away from where you'd like to be, just know that your experience is not only going to improve when you get to some point, your experience is just you moving in the right direction, you know? So if you feel you've got a long ways to go, as long as you have the autonomy and the control and the understanding to move you that way and you feel you're going there, immediately that's when the payoff occurs. So it's always just a moment away.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. It reminds me of the definition of success by, I can't think, is it Henry Ford or someone who said something about success is movement towards a worthy ideal. So it's not getting to your destination, it's moving towards it. And that that kind of harkens to that. So thank you so much, Dr. Alan Christensen, for joining us today on her Brilliant Health Revolution podcast. I encourage everyone to check out his book, the metabolism reset diet and also the upcoming thyroid reset definitely look into the challenge that he offers Um, so much information and inspiration for a lot of people so thank you for being here
1: good to be with you kieran thank you so much for having me
0: Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and send it to someone who would benefit from it. If you love the show and really want to support it, please go to iTunes, write a review, and subscribe. This helps other women find us so that they too can heal and enjoy brilliant health. I've got a gift for you. If you take a screenshot of your review, Post it on your social media and tag me. I'll send you a special surprise right to your inbox. Thank you so much for joining me. And remember, healing and getting optimally healthy isn't magic. It's science.